Welcome to Just a Book Club, where we talk about books that are just books. They're not valuable at all. I promise. There's nothing of note in these books to talk about. They're not literature. They're just books. All right. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Animorphs Book 2. The Visitor. The Visitor. That's right. Um, I have a brief summary for us before we get started. Our protagonists are confronted with how to move forward after the events of Book 1. Rachel is tasked with infiltrating the home of the controller, Mr. Chapman, since she used to be friends with his daughter, Melissa. Rachel uses the morph of the Chapman's cat and discovers that both Melissa's parents are controlled by Yerks. Uh, those are the freaky aliens. Upon her second visit, she is discovered by Chapman, who takes her to the head Yerk Visser 3. Uh, three reprimands Chapman for not making Melissa a controller, and actual Chapman, not the possessed Chapman, uh, begins to fight against his Yerk to prevent Melissa from being possessed. Uh, after an eventful rescue, Rachel leaves an anonymous note in Melissa's locker, letting her know that her father loves her even if he can't show it, and our heroes find new motivation to keep fighting. Epic. Yeah. Um... So, what uh, what stuck out to you this time around? What were you seeing? The big thing for me was that I was unaware that each book would be from a different perspective, from a different character. <laughs> yeah, I should have warned you. Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. So, this one is from Rachel's perspective. Still a different story than the first book, right? It still moves on chronologically but it's from a different character's perspective. And that was interesting to me because then I really tried to rack my brain and think about other stories that are told that way. Other, other stories where you get a different character's perspective as the story moves along. And it's unique. It's definitely unique. And then I thought, okay, so why? Why would the author give us Jake's perspective in the first book and then switch over to Rachel? What benefit is that for us as the readers? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there, there are a couple of things that, um, you know, I really appreciate that you brought that up because the thing that I'm noticing, I think we touched on it very briefly in the last episode, um, that comes out a lot in this series is empathy, right? You have um, these kids who uh, can communicate telepathically when they are morphed, right? When they are in animal form. And sure, that could just be a literary device to enable the story to move forward because it would be really awkward if they couldn't. Um, but it is also this kind of um, difference right in terms of their superpowers is that like in this moment they can connect with people on a different level um the andalites right the the good aliens um don't have mouths they only mm. communicate telepathically right they only connect with each other on this like mental level uh that we don't necessarily have access to um and so i think it is significant right, in this conversation about telepathy and all that sort of thing, that we do have access to these, um, to the inner thoughts 
of the individual characters, right? Um, it does feel different, right? Rachel's character feels distinctly different from Jake's in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, it's mentioned that they're cousins, which might, um, you know, might have been something convenient for the author, right? To kind of start breaking away from the voice that they're used to and move into a new voice and just say, hey, like these people are kind of similar. Um, so that's why the voices sound kind of similar. But they, they are also kind of different. And that, that comes out in Rachel's voice, I think. Um, but it, it gives us an opportunity to really connect with these characters. And, you know, I, I know for me, I'm really excited. Uh, I don't know if it happens, but um, I'm assuming that we're going to go through each of the characters and see what each of their perspectives are. Um, and I'm really excited to read one from Marco's perspective since he is like the coward, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it'll be really interesting to see how that affects the story. Um, when you have it from the perspective of the person who doesn't super want to be there. Yeah. Man, that is such a fascinating point. And I've thought about that before, wondering what the psychological effect is on us when we watch a TV show, read a book series, watch a movie where there's one main character. There's one protagonist, there's one hero, and everyone else is a side character. What does that do to us where we start thinking, hmm, so in life, there's just one main character. There's just one protagonist. And of course, a lot of us say, I'm the main character. I'm the protagonist of this story in the world. And then on the other side too, there are people who never think they are the main character. And that's damaging as well. So both versions of that, I think, are damaging to our psyche. Uh, you're right. It kind of destroys our empathy towards other people when we put ourselves as the main character in the world. And uh, then on the flip side, it uh, destroys our self-esteem when we think we might never be the main character. And so this is a really interesting take where everyone is the protagonist. You know, all these characters, uh, all these kids, there is no side character now because they're all getting their own book in the series. <laughs> Rachel, yeah, last book was one of the side characters and now she's, now she's the one telling the story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are 60 something books. And so if they're all told from, you know, different perspectives of these six characters right like that or i don't know what the number actually is but um yeah of, of, right, this, a lot. of this troop of characters mm -hmm. um they each have plenty of opportunities to tell their stories um you know speaking to that right in this concept of you know am i the main character or am i just a side character i think it's important to note that like the times in which um these narrations happen are really interesting, right? Um, you know, this story is told from Rachel's perspective. And so she is given opportunities to tell us things that we might not have heard. And we see things that we might know if someone else was telling the story that we don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, Rachel chooses to lie. Um, and so we get to see an aspect of her story 
that the rest of the cast doesn't. Um, you know, we get to see her experience the the threat of death as a cat, right? Um, when you know, when in 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 that hologram room, Visser Three is talking to to Mister Chapman and says, you know, kill kill that cat. It might be an Andalite. Kill it. Um, and she manages to survive, thankfully, but uh, chooses not to tell the rest of the cast um, about that event until much later when it's too late. Uh, and we wouldn't have heard that if it weren't for the fact that we are getting this story from Rachel's perspective. And we get to see her thought process about, you know, why she would lie. Um, you know, we get to see how she feels about Melissa. Um, mm -hmm. We get to see, you know, a lot of things that are really important to her experience and, you know, her interactions in this story. Uh, you know, we don't get to see uh, from Cassie's perspective. We don't get to see from Jake's perspective. Uh, two people who are also at various points keeping secrets that become important to the story later on. You know, we get Rachel's perspective uh, and, and her input and her kind of understanding of the situation. And I think um, this is also really interesting in terms of other approaches to, to multi-perspective storytelling. Um, I know right now in adult fantasy um, with stories like Game of Thrones and Wheel of Time and stuff like that, um, mm -hmm. this, the approach of having multiple perspectives in a third person storytelling mm -hmm. is fairly common, um, but it's compressed into a single book where you might have a chapter and then another chapter and then another chapter. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really valuable about this kind of first person, this whole book is devoted to Rachel. This is her story, right? She owns this. Jake mm -hmm. owned the last book. Rachel's going to own this one. Someone else mm -hmm. is going to own the next book. Is, you know, speaking to your point about main characters and, and who's the main character and who's not, I think, you know, one of the things you can look at is that everyone has the chance to be the main character. Mm -hmm. Everyone has the chance to um, say like, hey, you know, this is mine. This is my story. And everyone has the chance to step back and not be the main character. And mm -hmm. there's value in both of those, right? We see different aspects of each member of the cast as they are given opportunities to step forward. And then also when they step back, we see something else about them. Is there a downside to that? If we had stuck with one character's perspective the entire series, does that mean that we would have a greater affinity for them, that we would understand them better, we would connect with them better? And are we being cheated of that by getting all this switch around? When I was reading through book two, there were so many times where I thought, wow, I can't believe Jake did that. I can't believe Jake winked at Cassie like that. And I thought, oh, wait, no, wait, because this is Rachel. This is Rachel's book. <laughs> like, this is her perspective. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think not. I think, uh, I think the purpose it's serving is worth sacrificing that dedication to just one character. Um, I'm right there with you on everything you said. I, I think it does create more empathy. I think it does. I think it, uh, I think that rotating door 
of perspectives is really smart. I'm glad the author did, did it, but you know, I, I still always have to think devil's advocate and think, okay, you know, what are we losing from it? I could definitely say, right, when I'm, when I'm talking about adult fantasy, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of what's popular right now. Mm-hmm. Um, largely because of how expansive it is and exactly what you're saying, right? How little time we get with any individual person. Um, you know, reading through Game of Thrones is very difficult because I would read a chapter and think, oh my gosh, I'm really interested in what's going on here. And then we'd switch. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it was a huge kind of disconnect for me. And that's why I think this this choice to focus each book on a single person uh, is really valuable because mm-hmm. it means that we get to see the whole story it's framed as in, you know, like what I said before, that this, this whole thing is their story. And I think that kind of counteracts my main concern with something like this. I, I think it's also better in this sort of long form content, mm-hmm. right? We have 60 books. I think after 60 books, I know some of those are, are extra, right? Some of those aren't necessarily from the kids' perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some some kind of context stories that I'm really excited to read uh, as we go forward. But for now, right, we get all of, you know, we're getting these kids' perspectives. I think after 60 books of the same person, I might get kind of bored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Good point. And uh, yeah, so so getting getting the whole cast really. Um, allows us to flesh out the story a lot. And, you know, as we've been saying, it, it allows for a lot of other benefits as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I pick your brain about something and shift gears here? Yeah. Because they address it at the beginning of this book. It comes up a couple other times. This contingency of anamorphing, which is... While you are the animal, you have both the animal brain and the human brain at the same time. And when you are a human who is morphing and being an animal, you have to sometimes fight the animal brain and then sometimes give in to the animal brain. So they're flying as birds here. And in order to successfully fly, you have to give in to the animal brain and let that take over the kind of the instinctual part of you. But then you can't let it, you can't do that too much because then you'll get distracted or you'll lose focus of your human mission at the time. And so you have to kind of straddle both the animal brain and the human brain. And then, of course, there's a big one of if you're an anamorph for too long, over two hours, then you are permanently that animal. Um, How does that play into the bigger picture here? Why add that aspect to it is it just to create conflict is that the only reason is it just to raise the stakes or is there something else here the author is hinting at 
my guess is that, as we had discussed previously, that it's no coincidence that these are preteens and as they transition into being young adults from their childhood, they're morphing into adults through puberty. And so just like they're morphing into animals. I think the author here is also telling us that you've got your child brain and you've got your adult brain. And you've got these two brains at odds with each other. It just really hit home for me because it's fascinating to me that the majority of our life is spent as adults. When you, if, you live to, if you live into old age, then the vast majority of your life is as an adult. So then why does our childhood play such a huge part of our lives still, even into adulthood? If it was only a fraction of our life, why is it still so influential on us? I really love that metaphor and it resonates with me because then it's easier for me to process that almost like this little mini therapy session reading through book two that yes, of course, there is still the child brain in me that is fighting against my adult brain sometimes or my adult brain fighting against my child brain. And to be successful, to really accomplish my missions in life, I can't just be one or the other. I need my child brain. I need to anamorph. I need to use that superpower sometimes in life. I can't just be an adult all the time. And then also, I can't just permanently morph into my child self. It's totally dysfunctional as well. And so I can't live in my child brain for too long, for more than two hours, right, in this book. But however long it is for you personally, you can't live in your child brain for too long or you revert back to that. So you have to balance the two. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think it's a, it's really interesting how you've kind of flipped the script on this uh, conversation. Because I think, you know, last episode we were talking about um, you know, morphing from children into adults. Um, and it seems like this time around, something that's sticking out to me as we're having this conversation is the fact that in this context, maybe we're, you know, maybe the morph is going the other direction, right? Um, the, the animal brains are perhaps, you know, more fully grown in some ways right? We see that. We see that, you know, for whatever reason, the, the thoughts that they are having as these animals are appropriate to like the adult version of that animal. But at the same time, right, they have their own instincts and they're much more, or I guess much less intentional about how they think about things. That's something we see a lot as these kids are morphing is that the, the animals themselves are very instinctive, right? They get distracted mm. easily. That's something you mentioned. They, you know, they just move back and forth. They do whatever strikes their fancy. And that's the thing mm. that you have to kind of cramp down on and control. Um, they are, you know, the cat is not scared of things that it very much should be. Mm -hmm. um, and is scared of things that don't make a lot of sense to our human brains. Mm -hmm. But the, the humans are the ones that have to, you know, the human brain is the one that has to kind of take control and direct it mm -hmm. and say, no, we need to do this right now, or I'm going to permit you to do something else, right? The human brain is the one that sets boundaries 
mm-hmm. is the one that establishes rules. Uh, and these are all very adult concepts. Mm-hmm. And so we see these children being forced to be adults as they morph, not because they are taking on an adult animal persona, but because mm-hmm. they have to kind of parent these animals mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, they have to guide them and teach them and, you know, recognize their wants and desires and acquiesce mm-hmm. to them sometimes and prevent them other times, right? And yeah. recognize those things. And so they are being forced to do adult things, not because of their animal persona, but to their animal persona. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting because this was something else that I wanted to bring up is the other ways in which this book flips the script, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Last episode, we talked a lot about how easy it was to tell when someone was a controller or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And this time around, right, we see Melissa. And the first time we see Melissa, we think, oh, she's a controller, right? That's Rachel's first assumption is, oh, no, Mm -hmm. my friend who I've become super distant with and haven't really paid attention to has now become a controller and is possessed. And that's my fault. And then we learn that she's not. And, you know, we were talking about how all of the adults are the enemy. Um, last time, mm-hmm. you know, every adult is possessed. There's a, there's a lot of concern there. And then this time we have Mr. Chapman who has been, the enemy who was the, you know, kind of second in command antagonist, right? Mm-hmm. In uh, in the last book, we have his actual human persona coming out and saying, no, like, I love my daughter. You can't have her. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big focus, one of the main saving graces of this book in terms of, you know, protagonists and, and you know, good things happening mm-hmm. is Mr. Chapman standing up for his daughter taking control and saying like, no, like this, I will not stand for it. And so there are a lot of assumptions that I think the last book creates that this one now dismantles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's deep. (laughs) Uh, So we distrusted adults and adults were antagonists and now we've only made it to book two but already we have developed more empathy now that they've had to be the adults in the story now that they've had to rise to the occasion and not only uh, fight against the child brain or the animal brain and lean more into their adult brain, their human brain. But by doing that, now the adult characters have a little more depth. Now the adult characters aren't as flat. Now the adult characters are doing good and helping the cause. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. I just love how these young adult fantasy books use the supernatural to really empower young adults. I love that it's not a dismissal of the child brain. It's not telling them 
that they need to leave it behind, that is their superpower, right? Their childhood is what they're using to fight the bad guys. Um, you know, Percy Jackson books, the, the Percy Jackson and the Olympians books, where uh, his his learning disabilities are his superpowers. So all the things that these teenagers are told are disabilities turn out to be because they're demigods, right? How empowering, like, you don't have ADHD, like, or dyslexia, like, you're actually, those are actually your your godlike powers manifesting themselves in the regular human world. And it's like, oh, wow. How, you know, it's, it's just such a great way to tell kids like, hey, the stuff that everyone is telling you is making you broken is actually a superpower. But I like that they're acknowledging that it's not that simple. They're acknowledging that, yes, it's a superpower, but yes, you also have to straddle the other world the non-supernatural world. You also have to deal with adulthood. You also have to deal with the fact that, okay, you have ADHD, you have dyslexia, like you are a demigod. And that brings up all sorts of issues that now you have to deal with realistically. And, you know, okay, you, you can morph into an animal. There's aliens invading. Like, yes, your childhood is a superpower, but realistically, you live in an adult world. And so you have to deal with that. And it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. I'll go so far as to say that it's beautiful. It moves me. <laughs> cool thing about the Animorphs to me as a series and as a concept is, you know, talking about this subject, what is, at least in my experience, the most common child's fantasy? Mm. It's, it's to turn into an animal, right? Like I, I, I see that so much. You see it a lot, even you know, through you know adolescence and growth. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways in which we use animals as methods of identification. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we identify ourselves with certain animals so that we can understand ourselves better. Mm -hmm. um, we, we interact with that world and with this fantasy of becoming an animal in so many different ways. And the, the way in which this series kind of focuses on that and recognizes that fantasy and uses it, as you say, to discuss something really, really important about how we interact with our childhood and how we interact with um, the, the goals and desires of of children is really valuable mm -hmm. um, for that exact reason, right? These these fantasies tell us a lot about ourselves, right? What we fantasize about, what we dream about, what we think is cool, mm -hmm. is is really informative, right? I I really appreciate you know in in this in the last book Jake turned into a lizard, mm -hmm. and that was scary and in this one he mentions having nightmares about that and being very understanding towards rachel um mm -hmm. 
about the nightmares that she might have had about being a shrew, that she did have about being a shrew. But then he turns around and immediately becomes a flea and is like, no, this is fine because the flea's mm -hmm. brain is so small. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I struggled with coming into this series again is thinking like, oh, well, like, how do you know what an animal thinks like? Mm. Right. How do you know what, um, you know, how do you, the author, know how these animals think and feel? You don't. Um, and I think that's kind of the power of fantasy is that they don't have to. This doesn't have to be realistic. It is a fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, the fantasy to turn into an animal and to be this animal in this sort of specific way. Right. These are very human perceptions of what these animals think and feel. Um, but they're important because they reveal more about who we are. Right. What we mm -hmm. have chosen to prioritize and understand about these animals reveals things about us mm -hmm. and how we identify with them. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. I think um, just really quickly, I want to check my notes and see if there was anything else that I wanted to bring up. Um, there's a line that Marco says that really stuck out to me mm -hmm. um, towards the beginning, middle-ish. Um, they're meeting up, they change into, you know, they morph back into their human forms. They're all wearing their skin tight spandex, whatever, um, that they can still carry with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and Marco starts being kind of flippant about how they all look really stupid and none of them match. Mm -hmm. And there's this conversation about superheroes. And Marco says, you know, someone says, oh, we're not in a comic book. We're not superheroes. Calm down. Mm -hmm. And Marco's like, yeah, like, I wish we were. Because, you know, and, and his exact words are, in a comic book, heroes don't get killed. And, you know, while we're talking about this fantasy, right, this goal of becoming an animal, right, this, this idea, this dream that, that we might have, um, that phrase makes me wonder, what is the nature of power fantasy? You know, why do we fantasize about having superpowers? And what do the different superpowers that we fantasize about mean about who we are? Mm. And what's interesting, too, is that in these stories, the protagonists aren't the only ones who have superpowers. The villains always have superpowers as well which are as strong or stronger than the heroes. And so yeah. fantasizing about having powers is not what makes us the hero. Villains have powers too in these stories. So you're getting onto something really, really good here. Is everybody, does everybody want to be the hero? Because if everyone's fantasizing about powers and you're asking, what does it say about us depending on what powers we're asking for? Well, also, what are we doing with the power? It says a lot about us as well. Do we want the power because we f desperately feel powerless to help the people around us? And we want some added measure to finally be able to help the people that are suffering around us? Because 
I know a lot of people that certainly feel that way. I know I felt that way many times, feeling completely powerless to help the people around me and what they're going through. And I just wish I had the superpowers to just break through the wall and solve their problems. And on the other hand, there are people who want the superpowers, but because they feel like their own lives, like they feel powerless in their own lives and they want to take control and they want to hurt, raise havoc, seek revenge, and they feel powerless in doing so and they want the power to carry out the evil deeds. Yeah. Now, luckily, in the last you know couple decades, we've been getting more complex uh, villain stories, and you know, rightfully so, they're making sure it's not too simplified. But I'm just kind of adding on to your question of what does it say about us as far as what our intentions are with the power. Yeah, talking about this has made me think about something really interesting, which is um, we, you know, you know, we've been talking about superpowers, right? This this idea of having an, an extraordinary supernatural ability uh, above and beyond what other people can do, um, and what that affords us. But I think an important aspect about this fantasy that maybe Marco is talking about in this mm-hmm. in this line, to some extent, right? This his his conversation is very specifically about costumes right we should be wearing matching costumes we need to look like comic book heroes mm-hmm. um and i think you know in a way the costume itself is part of the the superpower of of a superhero right um often i have thought about exactly what you're describing right this idea that part of the power fantasy is the fantasy to be able to do the right thing. Mm. You know, it's not just to be super strong. It's to be strong enough to lift a building off of a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a big part of that is that, you know, you as a person, I as a person have the capacity to help others. I can reach out. I can be a hero in someone else's life. But often the thing that gets in my way is the fear that it is not my job. Mm. And oh, how I would love it if someone, if some alien from outer space could just crash land in my backyard and tell me this is your job. Mm. You know, if I could have some ancestral alien parent to tell me what my job is um, and to tell me this is your responsibility. This is what you need to do with yourself. That's interesting. So you're saying part of the power fantasy is that responsibility is thrust upon us. Mm-hmm. And we see that in, in the book as well, right? Like the, you know, the, the Andalite crash lands tells them the Yerks are evil, says go fight them. Right. Mm-hmm. And they do, you know, they, they're, they're doing their best. And so far, at least the Andalite is, is demonstrated to be correct um, in, in his kind of description of events, right? They're, they're possessing, you know, the big thing here is separating children from their parents and, mm-hmm. you know, making it 
look like the the children or the parents don't love their children anymore, making mm -hmm. people distant from each other, destroying families, right? This is something that must be stopped. Um, and, you know, I know throughout my life, there have been so many times where I have tried to help and been told that's not your job. Mm. Stop it. I don't want your help. I don't want you here. Mm -hmm. um, it would be such a blessing to have someone point at something and say, that's your job, right? This is the evil you need to stop. This is the good mm -hmm. you need to protect. Go fight, win. Yeah, a quest, a quest, right? A specific quest. And we've seen that so much in sci-fi and fantasy is the heroes given such a specific quest. There is an end goal in mind. There is a black and white, here's the right thing to do. You're the one to do it. Here's the time frame you have to do it in. If you succeed, then mission accomplished. And that is part of the fantasy, is the simplification of it, is the parameters of it. <laughs> that's, what, yeah. that's what we're fantasizing about here. <laughs> And I think um, Animorphs does a really good job of kind of deconstructing that a little bit, right? We see a lot mm -hmm. of deconstructions of superheroes where the empowered people choose not to be good, right? Mm -hmm. That's been really common recently. And I think Animorphs does a good job of, of deconstructing the genre in other ways, right? Um, I feel like Animorphs is very akin to um, like Power Rangers or something similar mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? These teens... Are given this responsibility and they have to go out and do it um it's a team there 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 are a lot of similarities there with with that type of superhero the difference is they don't have a parental figure to give them mm -hmm. that responsibility their parental figure dies in the first 20 pages of the book mm -hmm. of the first book and they have to figure it out themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They're given a broad, like, you have to, you know, protect Earth from the Yerks before, you know, so that the Andalites can get here. But they're on their own. Mm -hmm. They don't have a guide. They don't have a person to give them missions every week. There's no, like, your mission, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> um, thing happening here, right? Like, they, they meet up and they're like, all right, what's next? Mm -hmm. What do we do now? Um, and that's a, that's a really, I think, cold reality to be thrust with is that like, yes, you do have superpowers. You do have all of these things that enable you to do the right thing. Well, my takeaways from today are embrace my child brain, my imagination, the part of me that is okay with stepping over boundaries, the brave part of me, the curious part of me. And embrace that, let that be one of my superpowers as I balance it with my adult brain. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add to that is that, um, you know, one other takeaway that I've had is that sometimes our assumptions about others are not what they seem. Mm. That people we think are the villain are as much a victim of their circumstance as we are mm. thanks for listening to just a book club 
You can catch us every Wednesday on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Next week, we'll be doing book three, The Encounter, in the Animorph series. This episode of Just a Book Club was edited and audio engineered by Delbar Media. The original theme song was written by Alex Delbar.